All right, ladies and gentlemen, let's get rolling. First, let me thank you for, a for, for hearing about it. We didn't, we didn't get the ad in the newspaper on time, and so I don't know how you guys all found out about it. I think the radio station probably helped, and we got a little, little community calendar. We got the community calendar. A small little one, so so this is good. This is this is the education that it does matter. Advertising works. But thanks, thanks for coming. Actually, this is really a it's a myth, though. It is a myth. Yeah, well, that'll be a, that'll be one of the ones coming up. Actually, this is a this is a lovely lovely sized crowd. Actually, I like this. This is this is nice. A little less cramped. Um, so the uh, so this series for this year um, I've, I've titled it Myths of the Modern American Mind, and the first lecture will be on smartness, but. What I wanted to do was um, take the techniques that we tend to apply to evaluating cultures 200, 300, 2,000 years ago, where we say, oh my goodness, look at these silly things these people are what, How could they believe this, right? Those foolish, foolish people, uh, which tends to be how we do these things, and try and apply them to ourselves and our contemporary worldview. Uh, specifically, I want to focus on ideas that are peculiarly American. Now, it's not that we're crazier than other people. Uh, it's just that cultures vary, um, and their myths and belief systems vary. So I really want to take a look at some of the things that make America unique, some of the things that we believe that most people don't, or that we have a particular emphasis on that other ones de-emphasize, or we have you know, just a strange take on it. Um, and to do that, <clears throat> then I want to structure these roughly to, to demonstrate, you know, that we believe it, whatever the subject is, um, that, it, that there is a peculiar American take on it, that this really is more or less either unique to America or our view on it is, is roughly unique, um, that it is a myth that there's, there's either limited reason or no reason to believe it in quite the way that we do believe it, and then finally, and this will be very speculative, I, I'll just say that right away, um, I, I want to try and figure out why. What function does, do, does, the, do, does this particular outlook serve um, in helping us try and think about the world, understand ourselves, understand our place in the world? Because this is, you know, this is what myths function to help people understand the world. When, when people say myths are not true, that can be, generally it is true, but it doesn't really answer the question of their function to begin with. Why did people believe them? Right? So I really want to try and do that. But I, but I have to say, trying to come to grips with the origins of your own worldview is very difficult. So that last part in particular will be quite speculative. Um, so the first one tonight will be on smartness, uh, which really is too easy. <laughs> um, so what is the idea of smartness? And we have this concept, and it goes back about 100 years, uh, maybe a little less, maybe 80, um, that within human beings, every human being, is, is an inherited, primarily genetic, you're born with it, capacity to understand, reason, comprehend, function, and, and, let, and be successful in the world. And some people get more of this thing, this factor, this this quotient, this aptitude, than other people. So that when we see successful people, we say, oh, it's not, look how, they must be smart, they must be brilliant, they must be a genius. And when we see unsuccessful people, we tend to think, well, they're dumb. 
right? It, how, how, it's just, it disturbs us. And when we see things we don't like, we say, oh, that's stupid, or those people are dumb. They don't have the magic it factor. They just, it's not there. It's not there. So that's, that's roughly a, a rough definition of, of smartness. We also say intelligence, IQ, aptitude, genius is often a, a synonym for, for the same concept. I like the idea of the, of the word smartness. Um, that we believe it, I think is, I mean, I think we just recognize, right? We believe in smartness. Ask any parent about their child and they'll tell you my child is smart. Uh, and there's, we're gonna talk about, there's a lot of evidence for that. Um, two pieces that jumped out at me when I was thinking about this is one, was a cover of Wired Magazine that I've copied there. Um, the next Steve Jobs. And it shows a, a, a young Mexican girl, as it turns out. Um, and it turns out she's, she's doing very well on math tests in Mexico. I mean, like spectacularly well. Ipso facto, she's smart. And because she's smart, she is very much like Steve Jobs. Because he was very successful. So he must have been smart. And so you see the connection. There is this magic substance that the people who do well on math have it, and the people who run successful technology companies have it, and it's the same thing. It's a shared magic capacity <laughs> that we call intelligence or smartness or genius. Right? So because this, I think she's 14-year-old Mexican girl is very good at mathematics, she could very well be the next Steve Jobs because Steve Jobs was, well, he had no particular capacity for mathematics that's ever been demonstrated, uh, but he did lots of other cool things. So he must be smart in the same way. The fact that they did entirely different things, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that. Uh, another one is, a, is an ad you may have seen um, on, on, online, and it says, Einstein's IQ was 160. What about yours? And then it gives you all the scores. You want to know where you fall, right? Where's your IQ? Are you down at the bottom, severely challenged, below average? You want to be at least average, don't you? Are you above average? Are you a genius like Einstein or an extraordinary genius? See, we know Einstein had to have an IQ, even though he never took an IQ test. In fact, he refused to take IQ tests. So we'll get returned to that point as well. So this, I think we're all familiar with this, right? This theme comes up in our, our culture over and over on the news, that the successful people are smart. People who dwell in school are smart. People who make money are smart. People who don't, we, we suspect, are dumb. And that this smartness is innate in them. It's not that this 14-year-old Mexican girl has been given something from the outside. It's there to begin with. Steve Jobs is not given something. He was, it was innate in him the smartness, the genius, the IQ to succeed. It's all about success, of course, we know that. So I think we can, you know, I could go on and on with examples, but this is a very common idea. Now, is it peculiarly American? The answer is yes. In fact, this is almost uniquely American. The word smart in the English language um, originated from, from Old Dutch, and it meant painful. So when we say, ooh, that's smarts, that's the origins of, of the word from Old Dutch, which is fascinating, because that goes back to the 1300s. We've maintained that sense of smart for seven, 800 years, which I always think is fascinating. So we still have that. You go on a little bit 
farther, and it got the sense of a smart dresser, someone who was looked good. And I think this comes out of the notion that when you see someone who looks particularly well-dressed or stylish, it does have that sort of piercing quality, that sort of notice. You kind of, it grabs your attention like pain does. And so we go, oh, that's a smart dresser. So the, the origins of that are about 1450s in the English language. Um, and then if you go, this is from the OED, of course. And if you go through the OED and you say you want the one that means clever, intelligent, quick-witted, that comes about in about the 1860s, and as the OED says, is almost exclusively an American idea. The British do not use the term in that sense. It's an American sense of the word. Um, there is no close equivalent to these ideas in many languages. So just, just the concept of what we have of like IQ or smartness, it just isn't there. You'd think it would be. But it really isn't. They have, they have lots of words for like capacity or ability, but some universal, abstract, internal force. The closest is something like genius in its various guises and various languages, but that tends to be very different again. So it is a peculiarly American uh, belief. Uh, fascinatingly, over a bunch of years, um, now I can't remember her name, Harkin, I believe, uh, and, and her friend and her colleague, Stuart and Harkin, Harkin and Stuart. Oh, I should have written it down. Did I write it down? This is why I should use notes, because I always forget names. Anyway, co contemporary researchers studied all over the, all over the world with, with colleagues from all over the world. They asked parents to tell them about their children. And in other countries, parents, and, and what you say about your children varies wildly from country to country, by the way. In Italy, they're in simpatico, friendly, easy to get along with. Reliable, conscientious, easy to deal with, have a lot of friends, social, asks questions, is independent. All of those will be answers that other cultures give. In America, our top three answers are all a version of, my child is smart. <laughs> In no other country is this an answer at all. They never mention their children as smart. It just doesn't occur to them to be something that's either important or a concept that they have. It's fascinating research. They've been, this has been going on for years and years. They've been doing this. And, and, and it just the distinction is, is crazy. It's just like, wow. To the point where they say, essentially, it is an American obsession. Like, you know, baby Einstein videos. <laughs> right? Oh, if, if we're going to do something to our babies, and then there'll be Einsteins, and that'll be good for some reason, because we want our children to be Jewish refugees, <laughs> right? Because that is, what is that? See, no, that's not it, is it? Uh, you know, they, but this is the, this is the idea, that, that somehow, some way, we're, this, this magic formula IQ will be in there, this, this intelligence, this smartness. And boy, that, that'll be great. That'll be great for everybody. Um, so truly, this is, this is almost unique to, to American. Another example of its uniqueness, if people know the SAT test, used to stand for Scholastic Aptitude Test. Um, they dropped the abbreviation. Now the SAT test stands for nothing. It's just the SAT test. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything. And we'll talk about why they had to drop the aptitude. But for the longest time, it was supposed to test aptitude. No other country that I can find in the world gives aptitude tests for college admissions. They all give subject tests. Because if you're going to go to college for history, 
They asked students questions about, take a guess. <laughs> History, right the first time. You guys are smart. And if you're going to go in and study math, they ask you a whole bunch of math questions to see if you know history or math or languages or whatever your general field is that you're going to study. Notice how logical that is. Do they know anything about history? Maybe they do, maybe they don't. One way to find out, ask them questions. We don't do that. We say students have this magic capacity built into them. It is their aptitude, their intelligence, their smartness. If you have a lot of it, you will do well in any subject you pursue. We don't ask, do you know anything about history? We ask, are you the kind of student who, if you wanted to study history, would be successful? It was a completely different question. And, and, and when you phrase it this way, which is how it's structured, it's crazy. It really is. For instance, my brother did really, really well on all the aptitude tests. Uh, and he went to college to play football because that was what he was interested in. It didn't matter how he did on any given aptitude test because he wasn't interested in anything except football and girls and beer. Uh, but, but he, which he, all three did very well. Um, you know, but so the aptitude, to, he, no matter if he had infinite aptitude for math, it wouldn't have mattered because he wasn't going to do math or history or French or biology. He was going to do football. And the second he couldn't do football, he was going to not be in college anymore. So, it's, so notice how strange it is to test for aptitude rather than do you know anything about this subject that you want to pursue? Yeah. And, and like I said, literally every other country I've looked at, Germany, France, Italy, Spain, uh, Japan, China, India, has all kinds of tests. And I looked at all the major ones, but they might have an aptitude test somewhere in some of the minor ones, but because they have a lot of states and each state has different tests. But generally they're national ones and a lot of the state ones are all subject tests. We are the one country, or at least a single major country that says, no, 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 we don't want to test for knowledge. That would be crazy. We want to test for innate capacity. If you've got it, excellent. If you don't have it, too bad for you. But what we want is not knowledge and skills, we want capacity, we want the smartness, the IQ, the intelligence. Right. So again, we believe in it. It's, our parents talk about it. It's the way we structure our admissions to college uniquely in the world. It's the way we do this. So what is it? What is this thing that we test with IQ tests and aptitude tests and everything else? This turns out to be a really good question. Um, to give you an answer, anybody remember the book The Bell Curve that came out in the 90s? Yeah. And, and it proved, with all kinds of useful factual information, that blacks were inferior intellectually to whites, and whites were slightly inferior to Asians, and, and that's sort of the way things are. Not, not that they were biased in any way, it's just the way <laughs> the world is, right? Oh, very nice. So the American Psychological Association and a bunch of other people who do psychometrics were, were sort of upset by this because they're like, ooh, that's bad. We don't want to be accused of this. And they had, of course, used a bunch of the research from these people. So they got together a panel of all their experts. I mean, this is, the, if you can look up this edition of uh, American Psychologist, I mean, it is, they, there's like 20 authors of this piece. They have all the review boards from the big, big schools and all this. So I mean, it is, everybody has put the USDA stamp of approval on here. This is the good beef. 
Quote from the introduction, although considerable clarity has been achieved in some areas, no such conceptualization has yet answered all the important questions and none commands universal assent. Indeed, when two dozen prominent theorists were recently asked to define intelligence, they gave two dozen somewhat different answers or definitions. But stunning. They've been studying this for 80 years or more, and there's no agreement whatsoever on what it might be. There's no shared definition. This is an peculiar, to say the least, notion. Uh, indeed, it suggests that they have no idea what they're talking about. <laughs> and it suggests that because they have no idea what they're talking about. Uh, the evidence for this is, is it's just comprehensive. Um, just to run a little bit past you, uh, they say there is no, um, no conceptualization that has yet answered all the important questions and none commands universal assent. This is to put it mildly. Uh, there is a large minority of researchers who say there is no evidence for such a thing as intelligence. There is a, another group, large group, that says, no, no, there is a single intelligence called, if you want to call it the IQ quotient, they have various names for it, but we'll, IQ is its closest, you know, normal use, usage. But those people do not agree on any test on how you would measure it or any definition of what it is. So there's no accepted test, no accepted definition amongst the people who believe it exists. Then there's another large group of researchers who say, no, 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 there is no single intelligence there's multiple intelligences, but they don't agree on what those multiple intelligences might be, and so they don't agree on how to test them. Plus, they're divided into other groups of researchers who says, while there are multiple intelligences, there is some correlation amongst all the intelligences that might be like, but not exactly similar to, an underlying IQ. So there it is, state-of-the-art information on intelligence. Um, how did this preposterous, truly preposterous situation, I mean, truly, this is, this is ridiculous, uh, situation come to arise? Um, this is where the, the myth comes from. Now, this is uh, Spearman, uh, is a gentleman. Benet was a Frenchman who, who started this research, and his original goal, which is not a bad goal, was to say, can we identify children with a test who might need special or extra help in school? This is perfectly reasonable. So if I give a, kid, a child a reading test and they don't do well, we can say, well, they're probably going to need more help with reading. And this sort of grew into this notion that, well, maybe there is some underlying facility. And in the 20s, a, a researcher named Spearman recognized that he had given a, a lot of different tests to a lot of different children. And noticed that when children took more than one of the tests, the results correlated. So that if they tended to do well on one kind of test, they would tend to do well on another kind of test. And so he did some statistics and mathematical work, uh, some of which is, is very spotty, um, and said, there is this thing, the G factor, what we, which we now call IQ, is where it comes from, um, that underlies it. Now notice this is not a terrible supposition, by the way. If you have a correlation, between two things, there might be an underlying connection. It's a very good question. But what you risk and what has happened in spades is the, the fallacy of correlation equals causation. If you take that correlation, the G, and assume that it exists in the real world, 
This is the fallacy of reification. Fancy word, not that important. It's just a fallacy of reification. But to give you an example, if you look on the back of the handout, I have this brilliant, beautiful correlation between the global average temperature versus the number of pirates in the world. Now, since the uh, roughly the 1820s, there, the first pirate flag we have, right? Um, the global average temperature has been going up. This is very well established. If you look on the bottom of the chart, you'll see the average number of pirates has been decreasing dramatically. We're down to apparently roughly 17, um, which is not a lot of pirates, hence all of the global warming. Now, these two factors correlate perfectly. And we can work out the correlation and say, well, for every 20 pirates we lose, we get a 0 0.01 degree increase in global temperature. And so we call that correlation, we call that P, right? We'll call that correlation P. Now, it might be that there is something that causes this P. We would just need to go out and find it in the world. Somewhere out in the world, there would be a P thing, like it turned out could be. Maybe if they're incredibly carbon rich, and when they die, they produce huge amounts of methane. And so as we've been eliminating pirates, we've been pushing methane. So P would end up being a correlation with like methane or something. Um, it turns out that P doesn't really stand for anything. There's no reason to suspect, and no evidence certainly, to support the notion that eliminating pirates causes global warming. Although we could run the experiment by creating pirates and see if we could reverse global warming with pirates. <laughs> which I think is really worth the effort, right? Why not? Let's, let's just go for it. Um, you know, there is an international talk like a pirate day. Uh, and so perhaps if we see a slight dip in, in global warming on international pirate day, we could say, there it is. There would be P. There's proof of P that it actually exists in the real world. That would be the error of reification. P does not exist in the real world. It is simply a statistical artifact of a correlation that has no causal link. Correlation does not equal causation, the error of reification in this case. Precisely, and I mean precisely the same mistake, and of equal magnitude, has been made with the notion of intelligence. There is literally no evidence that there is an underlying, inherited, universal factor that leads to success, world comprehension, skill in school, and the capacity to survive and flourish in the world greater than your neighbors. I mean, literally none. It is as pure as sort of medieval astrology is the only equivalent I could come up with. When you take an IQ test or any test of this form, what the test says is, if there is such a thing as IQ, for which they provide no validation, and if this test accurately test for IQ, for which they provide no validation, then the score that you get on this will correlate to your quantity, as if it comes in quantities, of this magic substance. Let's call it the ether. Um, and, and literally, there, there is no evidence. And let's go back to the two things I started with 
at the beginning to let you understand how truly preposterously bizarre the idea of intelligence is. So we have our 14-year-old girl who's very good at mathematics, who turns out to be just like Steve Jobs, who was not good at mathematics. Um, what were the defining characteristics of Steve Jobs? If anybody's read his biography, some things that stand out is jackass, <laughs> monomaniacal, driven, self-obsessed, LSD, LSD um, visionary, had, a, had his ideas and was going to see them through to fruition. But truly amazing capacity to drive his ideas to fruition in the real world. She doesn't look particularly like a nasty little girl. <laughs> if she had like somehow manipulated the school board into making her principal and then had them all fired so that she could change the curriculum to build a bigger, better school for her friends to thrive in while she made billions of dollars, I would think, absolutely, there's your next Steve Jobs. <laughs> The defining characteristic is someone who's very good at mathematics, as if there is one, which there's not, there's going to be many possible characteristics, um, that, that it should be the same as someone like Steve Jobs, who a visionary, business success, amazing guy in many ways. It, it, it's really, it's, 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 just, it's just crazy. Has she shown any special capacity to drive her vision of reality and make it palpable in the planet? They don't mention any in the article. She seems very nice and pleasant and seems to get along with people, which is very un-Steve Jobs-like. But it's clear that if you go into a corporate meeting and you're friendly and want to get along with people, you're not going to be able to force them to do things they don't want to do, which was one of his great skills. You don't think it's right, you think it's wrong, and you hate me for making you do it, I'm going to make you do it anyway. Why? Because I say so and I think it's correct. That's a particular skill might be just insensitivity to other people, um, but it doesn't correlate in any way with our seemingly charming 14-year-old Mexican girl, who is, all the evidence suggests, quite brilliant in mathematics. The second one there, if you look at Einstein, had an IQ of 160. How do we know? We don't. He never took a test. Uh, because he would not. He did not believe in IQ tests. They tried to get him to take them. He refused because he thought they were so much medieval astrology. Um, um, and he consistently said, uh, imagination and creativity is much more important than anything else if you want to do mathematics. Um, and if you think about it, when you take it, people, how many people take an IQ test, SATs test, some form of these things, right? So it's, it's, it's almost universal. That's how much we love them as a culture. No, absolutely, consistently, we'll talk about that. They do it all the time. Um, so, so Mr. Einstein, what made him unique? Well, one of the things was that everybody commented on was his capacity to stick with one problem. So from his special theory of relativity to the general theory of relativity, he worked on and off on that one problem for about eight or nine years. And when he got stuck with the math, which he did occasionally, because he was, he was a plenty good mathematician. Don't, don't think that he wasn't. But he wasn't a world-leading mathematician. That wasn't his skill set. So when he struggled with some math issues, he would get his friends who were mathematicians to help him. So imagine I give you an IQ test and say, 
You have seven or eight years to finish it. If you get stuck on anything, feel free to have some of your friends help you. <laughs> when you think you've got it pretty well wrapped up, bring it on in, and we'll see how you did. <laughs> I think I would do a lot better <laughs> under those conditions. But notice, this is the conditions that people actually work under. You almost never work in the world in isolation. I, I, I would say never, but you know, perhaps there are potential exceptions. But almost everybody, almost all the time, works with other people. If you have a problem and you can't solve it, we tend to think, A, Google it. B, go see somebody I know who might be able to help me out. This is a reasonable, in fact, excellent way of making progress. If you look at uh, math articles that are published in math journals, they're rarely a single person. Um, uh, recently, a very difficult math problem was solved, and they want to give the, the Russian mathematician who solved this a million-dollar prize, and he said he wouldn't accept it. And one reason he wouldn't accept it is he said, I did not solve the problem. Lots of other mathematicians contributed all kinds of parts to this, and the notion that I somehow singularly came up with this solution is simply incorrect. That's not how math works. Ipso facto, I will not accept your prize. So he turned down a million-dollar prize. Really pissed the prize people off, of course. Um, so we're given these tests, and you say, go. Fast, fast thinking is prized. How often do we have to think really quickly? How often do we make mistakes because we have to think really quickly? Wouldn't it be better if we developed skills that prized slow contemplation, say, seven or eight years to work out the general theory of relativity? I mean, basically, Einstein was dumb because he only solved one problem in eight years, and he had to get help to do that. <laughs> Look at how, what kind of IQ is that? It's a terrible, he's got no IQ at all. Anybody could do that, right? See how preposterous this is? It's just silly. I mean, it truly, really is, is, is radically silly. So let's take a look at the scholastic aptitude test. The reason they had to drop, they used to be called that scholastic aptitude test, which I like, by the way, because if people know what scholastic means, it's from the Greek for leisure. Which I think, which I think uh, the test is given all wrong, right? Because I, I think I would have done better if it had been a straight-up leisure test. Right? Like, oh, now we're talking. I'm ready for this test. No, so it was, uh, it, it's not a leisure test at all, because uh, they don't know what Greek means, obviously, because um, they stopped asking Greek on these kinds of tests a long time ago. No, it's an, it was supposed to be an aptitude test, but it turns out they had no evidence that they were testing for aptitude, so they, had, they literally had to drop it. So that just means SAT. So the SAT just means SAT. It's just the SAT test. All capital letters doesn't stand for anything. Um, so, so why do they give it? The origins of this are quite fascinating. Part of the problem was, early on, all of the Ivy League schools in particular used to give subject tests, like every other country in the world still does. And it turns out that lots of Jews were doing really well on those tests. And the Ivy League schools were like, ooh, if we let too many Jews in, then good people, smart people, the right people, aren't going to want to attend our schools. And we'll start losing prestige. And so we need to do something to sort of 
reduce the number of Jews. Um, and so they came up with a couple of things. One is they said, oh, all of a sudden they became very interested in geographic diversity uh, because the Jews seem to be located in the urban centers on the East Coast. They said, well, let's start getting students from all over the country. That'll be much nicer. Um, and they said, let's switch um, in part to, to these different kinds of tests. The suspicion was that while Jews were good on subject tests, they were just being coached up because we knew genetically they were inferior, right? And so they don't have the kind of aptitude that the good people do, um, and so they'll do very much better. And in fact, if you trace the history of genetic or of IQ testing, it tracks almost perfectly the racial stereotypes of the period in which they're given. Um, further, you get things like the Flynn effect, which is, which is brilliant and beautiful, and they absolutely do not want to talk about this. But the Flynn effect, uh, very well established, by the way, is that IQ tests are scored, by the way, so the, the mean score, uh, uh, the 50% of people score right around 100. We always want the score to be 100. That way, 100 a day can be correlated through time. And so the test is always right around 100. Well, people have been getting better at IQ tests. And so they have to keep changing the test to make it harder and renorming it. They've been getting better at, I think it's like three points a decade, which doesn't sound like very much. But what it means in the last 100 years, if you had gotten 100 100 years ago, you would get 130 today, which our handled chart tells us puts us into the gifted 2.3%. So either the average American person has moved from being average, 50th percentile, into the top 2% magically through innate inherited capacity in the last 80 years. Or if you work backwards, all of our grandparents were retarded, <laughs> mentally deficient. Or IQ tests don't really test intelligence at all, right? That there has not been this magic transformation of the innate capacity of the average American citizen. This seems like the most likely, I would think. Um, and so uh, the hypothesis here, by the way, which I think is, is reasonable, although it needs, needs testing, is simply we're getting better at taking IQ tests. And it doesn't take a lot of reflection to figure out why this would be. Um, we, we're more literate than we ever have been. We go to more school than we ever have been. And we're subjected to more abstract reasoning tests like IQ tests in school and other places than we ever have been. Um, and this tracks very clearly. Women who used to score poorly on IQ tests because, of course, they were inferior have made up all the ground magically because they have now been inheriting more of the magic IQ essence. Um, and it's not just because they've been receiving better educations and more opportunity. That would be silly. Uh, it's some innate capacity within women that's just been sort of suddenly burgeoned from no place. I don't know. Um, yeah, preposterous, truly preposterous. Um, same thing with African-Americans. Right? Oh, they score low. Well, they don't score low. It turns out if you take African-Americans from middle-class homes and good schools, they score exactly the same way other people do. If you take people from poor schools and in poverty, they score poorly. Right? Perfectly clear. Great, great test they did to, to, to really establish this pretty clearly. Um, so American GIs in World War II 
go over to Germany, a lot of them African-Americans, and they have children with German women, primarily men, of course, with German women. Some of those children stayed in Germany. Some of those children returned to the United States. The African-American children who returned to the United States were raised in predominantly African-American communities that were, you know, on average, much poorer, much less good schools. If you give those kids IQ tests, it turns out they're not very smart. If you give the ones who stayed in Germany IQ tests, it turns out they're just as smart as the Germans. Innate capacity? Ooh, maybe innate capacity doesn't cross the Atlantic. That's one possibility. Or, there is no such thing as intelligence as this overriding magic force that makes us good at everything. Now again, nobody is arguing that people aren't born with variable skills. Some people are better at some things than other people are. Some of this is inborn, and some of it is, 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 is function of the environment in which you're raised. And it's the combination of those things that pr produces our peculiar strengths and weaknesses. This is not debated at all. The question is, is there some underlying thing, smartness, intelligence, that makes us much better at everything than almost anybody else would be who doesn't have that magic thing. No, the, the evidence is, is pretty damning that no such thing exists. But we believe in it. We believe in it very powerfully. So the question is, and now I enter the speculative part of, the, of, of this. Um, not any more speculative than the IQ people, by the way. Uh, but, but, but somewhat speculative, just to say, why? Why would we hold on this, almost uniquely, by the way, in the world, why would we hold on to this concept so powerfully? See, a subject test for a college admittance makes perfect sense. You work hard, you study history, you learn the subject, you do well. See, this, this, there's no magic needed, there's no ineffable essence that we haven't ever been able to measure or touch or identify or define even. That has to be tested there. Um, I think it comes back to a couple of things. Originally, again going back to the aptitude tests, one thing that they were interested in is this not all evil motivations, by the way. Much of this is perfectly reasonable and perfectly good. One of the ideas was to say, look, lots of the United States in the early days was really quite poor and did not have access to good education. Much like the United States today. Um, can we come up with a test that would allow us to identify those students who, even though they have not had the opportunity to have the education that would allow them to succeed, have the innate ability that if they were given the opportunity, they would succeed. And that way we could weed them out from the masses, get them into good schools, and make use of their capacity for themselves and for the greater glory of our country. Now, this is not an evil concept. But notice what it requires you to believe. Several things. One, that there is this innate capacity. Two, that it is very unevenly distributed. That some people have a lot, some people have almost none, and that most people we really aren't interested in. That we want to weed out the, the wheat from the chaff, as they say. We want to get the good people and, and pull them out from the people who really aren't worth educating. We don't want to waste resources on those people who just, they're uneducable, like women, for instance. Um, right, because we know that's not going to work. 
So, so this, this motivation on one hand sounds very good, on the other hand is underwritten by this very dubious set of assumptions. Um, if you read in the literature, you'll find all these remarks about, oh, IQ scores, SAT scores correlate with success in college. They correlate weakly. And there's reason to suggest that you know, background, educational background explains this, and the data is very strong in that direction. And then it correlates very strongly with success after. It actually correlates weakly again, but there is some correlation, so it's not a zero correlation, it's not a huge correlation. Um, what's much stronger, though, is that if you go to school and you graduate, you make more money, regardless of your family background. This is, this is what correlates really strongly. Not sorting by SAT scores, not sorting by AQ scores, not sorting by family background and wealth. If you make it through, if you demonstrate capacity in some field, your chances of earning more, a, a rough measure for success, um, goes up dramatically. Which is a, a very fascinating. But why, why do we believe this? It seems to be a couple of things going on here, at least, and again, speculative. One. We're a culture that is radically opposed to anybody being better than us. We don't have an aristocracy. We don't have civil administrations with awards and medals and suits. We don't feel that we owe respect to anybody based on their position alone. We're really radical levelers. We have a huge egalitarian tradition, particularly compared with, again, our European forebears in other parts of the world. We don't want to say you're better than me because of who you were when you were born or that you hold some high government office, or anything like that. We just, we hate that idea. Simultaneously, we want to be better than people, right? We want to stand out, we want to be remarked. We want to be successful, and we want our children to be successful. And so we look around and say, what is it that marks out for success? What is it that, that What's, what makes the difference? How can we pass through the veil? We don't want to be with the lowly masses. We want to rise up. We don't want anybody else to rise above us, of course, but we want to rise up. And so one of the things we've latched on to is Steve Jobs is successful because he has this quality. And maybe I have that quality too. And if I just have that quality, then I can be as successful as Steve. And because it's totally undefined, even by the experts, much less in general cultural usage, who knows? Maybe we all do. Right? It's sort of equal opportunity by natural dispensation. It's sort of this lottery notion. Right? It's not wrong to judge people based on intelligence because that's just the way things are. And you just happen to inherit increased quantities of of this. It's nothing to do with you, really. It's just nature selecting you out. And so you come from a sort of, I don't know, primordial or, or a providential elite, the elite of the mind. But by the way, Einstein hated this idea, loathed this idea. He thought this was the most preposterous idea people had ever come up with. He thought it's just another way of making a hierarchy to make some people low and some people high. And he thought it was dubious at, 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 at least and, and horrific at, at most. Um, and notice it also puts a huge emphasis on being right. If you're smart in school, you get the good grades and you get the correct answers. 
right? If you're a smart investor, you make the right investments and you make the right money. If you're a smart businessman, your business grows. Notice this, this, this concept, one, insulates us from the notion of chance, which we, everybody loves. We, we hate the notion that time and chance happeneth to all men. That we are subject to natural random occurrences. They do these surveys of, of um, like successful entrepreneurs and, they, entrepreneurs, and they say, how much of your success is due to your own actions and your own ideas? And most of these entrepreneurs say 99%. Which, which is demonstrably foolish. It's, it's just not true, right? I, I imagine that there is somebody out there with a, with a company that said, we're gonna call it Moogle, that's gonna be this great search engine. And they're like 90% of the way through its development when Google comes out. And they're like, damn. Were they wrong? Were they dumb? No, they just, they were outcompeted. Somebody else had their very good idea, which they had, just a little bit early. Imagine 9-11, right? The huge catastrophe for our country. World Trade Center, big business. Somebody in there was signing the contract that they had been working for for their lives. Think about the immense tragedy of this. Their business, their investment, their idea failed because of events, completely unimaginable events, planes flying into building, killing thousands of people. Chance happens to all of us. We hate that. We do not like to feel subject to the random forces of the universe. And so we invent things to come between us. Medieval astrology, intelligence, smartness. If they've got smartness, they'll be okay. My kids will be okay because they're smart. And that insulates you. You know you're going to rise to the top. You know you're going to do well because you've got the innate capacity. So it's a very strange mindset. It's very interesting, I think, but, but also quite odd. Um, another aspect of this is we tend not to like to moral, to be subject to moral sanction. Because it used to be, how do you succeed? Hard work. If you don't succeed, you're lazy. And this is not correct, but notice it carries this moral sanction. <coughs> you have the capacity to work hard. Ipso facto, if you don't, that's your own damn fault. Smartness, either it's in success or failure, well, see, that's just a given. It has nothing to do with you. Impersonal. We're just out in the universe with it. And so if we succeed, we can say, well, I'm smart, intelligent, nothing to do with me. It can be sort of, it's weirdly modest, right? I'm just a genius. Um, if you fail, uh, well, you know, ah. Uh, those people, those stupid people kept me down, right? We always blame people for being stupid. Uh, when George Bush was president, this is one of the most common critiques you would hear of him. Well, he's such a dumb man. And I kept thinking, he's president of the United States of America. It turns out that you don't have to be smart to be president. It's not one of the preconditions, right? Our emphasis on smartness or intelligence, or which doesn't exist, but our theory of it made us think, well, certainly the highest office in the land is only available to those people who we think have this. No, it's not true at all. Politically savvy people with really good advisors and lots of money, they tend to become president. If they're smart, well, that's okay. If not, it really doesn't matter. 
I mean, think back on some of our presidents. This is not one of the great distinguishing features. <laughs> Franklin Roosevelt, who I think was a brilliant man and a wonderful president, one of the great, great men of American history, showed no particular intellectual capacity for school or anything else. Until he got interested in politics. Oh, he was very interested in politics. Very savvy, very insightful, quite wise, but everybody, it, it, continually through his presidency, people just said, well, he doesn't seem to really focus and do the work. And it, it, he just wasn't the way they wanted him to be. Right? And so that frustrates us because we say, well, you've got to be smart. You have to be brilliant in the way we, in, in, you have to be good at mathematics. Ronald Reagan, not particularly good at mathematics as far as I know. Right? Um, again, I'm just trying to think. Wilson, he was the president of, of a college. He was a horrible president. Good Lord, he went to Europe and just got gutted like a fish. <laughs> he didn't know what the hell he was doing. Profoundly terrible performance. Um, there's a great book by David Halberstam called The Best and the Brightest. Brilliant book, in which he gives the biographies of these high government officials, and everyone is smarter and more intelligent and more impressive than the preceding one. You think, wow, this is the all-star cast of all time. And they're the people who got us into the Vietnam War and kept us in the Vietnam War and kept us mired stupidly in it in the worst possible way for the entire time. So while they have everything, that everything but wisdom, perhaps, which is a notion, by the way, like to finish up with that we hate. We hate the idea of wisdom. I'm not sure why. And most cultures love the idea of wisdom. Well, some of us desperately yearn. We desperately yearn. <laughs> but we, our culture does not even use this concept. As far as I can tell, it's, it's a dead word. What it used to mean was knowing the right course of action and having the courage to take it. It's a rough, loose definition. We put all this emphasis on knowing. That's sort of okay, but it's the doing that's really part of it too, right? Just knowing what's right and not doing it, it they carried no water with the ancient world. They had no interest in that. They called you a coward. They thought it was a, a, a horrible character failing of you. If you did not have the uh, cojones, essentially, to carry through what you thought was correct. <clears throat> and wisdom came with action, or, or appropriate inaction. Generally, they really liked action. Um, and so, so this notion of, of, of sort of, well, she's really great because she does well on math tests. So that is great to do well on math tests. Let's see where that goes. Let's see what the fruit of that is. Nobody would say that this is a, is, a, is a brilliant person in the ancient world yet. They might say she's off to a good start, but you have to wait and see. My, my favorite example of this is in Budapest. Um, if you win a Nobel Prize and you're Hungarian and you went to school anywhere around Budapest, they name a street after your teacher. They name a street after your teacher. I'm not sure if you get to pick the teacher, but I think you do. You get to tell them that teacher. Right? Significant notion. 
that, oh, there's, there's also, I think it's in Montaigne, where they say, if you see a young person act poorly, you go and slap their tutor. Right? Because the world we're in shapes us. Our teachers shape us. And that our actions are what we should be judged by, but within the context of what's going on. Right? It's a very different kind of worldview than ours. Uh, finally, I do think it has a lot to do with American individualism. We want what makes us successful to be about us. We succeed on our own, and we fail in groups. Right? That's, that's the American. If I'm a success, it was because of me. If I fail, it was because of all of them. Um, if you want a summary of Ayn Rand's psychology, there it is. Or philosophy, quote-unquote philosophy, is that the individual is great, the group is terrible. Which is silly. It's, it's a silly idea. Because um, we really can't do very much as individuals. We work well in groups. But we emphasize it to the degree that we want there to be something in the person, in us, in other people. Not in the community, not in the group, not in the culture, but in the individual that explains it. Individuals matter. I'm not saying that individuals don't matter. It's very un-American, by the way. Um, but the emphasis has gone really far, right? Just get the government off my back. Everything will be fine. In the last election, we had the, you know, they didn't build it uh, notion, right? That, that they would, you know, the government didn't build this. And it turned out that often the government had, in fact, built whatever it was they were pointing at. Right? The governments do build things. Highways, for instance, we like those. Power grids, we like those. Built by groups of people. It would be hard to build a freeway by yourself. Also moderately pointless. Right? It, it, it's, it, we do things communally, and that can be good. But we tend to resist that concept. We tend to resist it quite mightily. Um, and so this is the kind of arc I want to explore in this series. We believe in smartness. Having given this lecture, having seen the evidence, I still have a hard time not using the vocabulary in the same way I always have, even though I know it means nothing. To say somebody is smart truly is meaningless, because it's, it's undefined. Like I said, read the quote again. There is no definition of what it means. That this is, you know, it's, we don't know, but we believe in it nonetheless these innate capacities that are inherited. Um, and that structures our worldview to an incredible degree. The way we look at education, that's one reason we have such a unique education system is precisely this concept. Uh, if you look at the common core standards coming out now, they're designed for most of the students to flunk. That's the standard of the common core. Because as far as I can tell, we know that some students have it. Those are the students we want to really focus our energy on. And those other students, while they're going to need extra help and all that, really, they probably don't. And there's not a lot the schools can do. It's an interesting notion to create a standard that you want most of the students not to meet. It's a fascinating idea. Um, and so th these ideas influence all kinds of ways that we think about our schools, or about our societies, about individuals, how individuals succeed and fail, um, and, and continue to, to influence our world outlook. 
As part of this, too, I want to, to mention the next lecture is going to be on what's called scientism. And smartness is a subset of scientism. The idea that this correlation becomes a variable, and that variable refers to something in the real world, is the classic model of not scientific, because it's not anything to do with science, but it is this sort of kabuki play of science that we play, that we love, that we call scientism. Um, the notion that researchers for 80 years would be working on a subject and have absolutely no agreement on what they were working on in science would not fly. The first thing that would, everybody would do is say, well, we've got to do a bunch of experiments and come up with a definition. It would be, be like step one. And they would work on that until they could come up with some parameters for what they were doing. If it, if it, it, sometimes it takes them, it, sometimes it takes a long time to do this, because it could be hard, but that's what they would be working on. You don't just suppose that something exists, that nobody can agree on what it's called, and move forward. You, you know, that's not what you're supposed to do. Of course, it happens a little bit, but not like this. But it continues to influence us, hence, hence the myth of the American mind. Now let me finish with this thought. Again, this is peculiarly American, but myths are not peculiarly American. Every society has them. And so what I'm really fascinated by is sort of identifying them and trying to figure out how these, our particular myths, influence or why we are different from other places in the world or why we're similar. And then at the end of the series, in April or May, I think May, I want to kind of try and push this all together and see if we can kind of get an outline of, of the American worldview based on a lot of our mythological conceptions, and, and I mean in this case literally mythologic, mythological conceptions, uh, of the way the world works. So there you go. Smartness, myth of the American mind. Thank you. Thank you.